Hi and welcome to the Active Travel Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the latest research and developments in active travel. This podcast is brought to you by the Active Travel Academy, which is part of the University of Westminster in London. I'm Laura Laker and I write about active travel as a journalist. In this episode, we're talking about low traffic neighbourhoods, which are targeted measures to reduce through traffic in residential areas using filters such as planters or lockable bollards. Low traffic neighbourhoods, or LTNs as they're known, are being used as part of COVID-19 emergency transport measures across the UK to help more people use active travel more for short journeys rather than driving. However, they aren't uncontroversial and have been in the news on social media and local forums lately alongside various claims about their perceived impact on motor traffic. So we're here to talk about the facts today, in particular some new research by Dr Rachel Aldred, who is the Active Travel Academy's director. And you'll know her, of course, from previous of our podcasts that she has hosted talking about other people's research. But today it's about Rachel's research, which is looking at an existing study on low traffic neighbourhoods, in particular their impact on car use and car ownership in those areas, which will hopefully help us to unpick some of the myths around these measures. So welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Hi, Laura. Hi. Um, Can you explain to us the theory, first of all, behind low traffic neighbourhoods, what they are and why they're being used at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that it's important to stress is that low traffic neighbourhoods are intended to create a qualitative change on those streets, that it's not just about reducing a certain percentage of motor traffic on those residential streets. It's about changing them from places that people, um, you know, cut through on the way to somewhere else to places where um, people can walk, cycle, play, spend time and so on. So the idea is to change them from movement corridors for motor traffic to places um, that people can travel through actively, but also spend time in. Um, And it's also linked, I I mean, I think, I guess there's kind of several different reasons why this is so salient at the moment. So firstly, uh, we've seen a growth in motor traffic, but within urban areas that's been concentrated on the residential streets rather than on the A roads that are more designed to handle it. And one reason for that is the rise of SatNav and the fact that everybody now has the knowledge, which only cabbies used to have, you know, people have Google or Waze and they can find those cut throughs. So that's shifted traffic, that's effectively created more road space on residential streets and shifted motor traffic onto those streets. Secondly, of course, we've got the COVID-19 crisis and the fact that we found that many of our streets, many of our footways don't have sufficient space for people to pass safely. If you're trying to give two metres distance, even if the footway is two metres and many aren't even two metres, you can't, you have to go into the road. So we started to see people jogging in the centre of the road or walking in the centre of the road because they just couldn't pass safely in COVID-19 terms. Um, So that created more pressure as well to create space that pedestrians in particular and joggers could use. Um, And thirdly, I think um, the sort of uh, the good examples from places such as Hackney um, in in inner London, where these kind of policies have been implemented for some time now. And you've seen the fact that there are places where residential streets are not cut throughs and they do have those characteristics and so on. So I think in London, because people don't just stay in their borough, people travel through neighbouring boroughs, people um, started to see examples of those in Hackney, in perhaps Camden and some other boroughs and started to think, well, why are our streets not like that? And with the current pressure with motor traffic growing at the moment as people are trying to keep off public transport, it's become a really urgent issue because if we don't do anything, it's not like things can go back to some before. Mm. Things are potentially going to get worse and worse. Mm. I didn't actually realise that there'd been a slow growth because of um, sat-nav and things in residential street traffic. Has this been sort of measured or is it through apps 
that we've seen the growth? Uh, well, the Department for Transport, the data that I've seen is, I think, from Department for Transport um, road counts, mm -hmm. and mainly they do A roads, but they also do a sample mm -hmm. of smaller roads as well. So this is reported on in aggregate. And I think it's between around 1995 and 2010, where we've had um, a around a third growth in motor traffic, but that's within urban areas, that's tended wow. to be concentrated more on the residential streets. So obviously it's a bit, you know, we don't know for sure that's Google and Waze and so on, but you know, we know that mm -hmm. they have changed the way in which people find directions and the routes that, 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 that they think about, whereas previously you might just think, oh, I'll go down this A road. You might, you know, you might type your journey into Google or whatever, and you might then be given a different route. So what this has done effectively is increase capacity on the roads because it's made more roads available for more journeys effectively. Yes, exactly. So I think that is an important point because we know from the research that um, motor traffic, particularly when we're talking about congested situations where there's quite limited road space, the amount of motor traffic is quite responsive to the space available for motor traffic. So an increase, induced demand, an increase in road space tends to create more motor traffic. So in a sense, some of these policies are kind of reacting to the fact that more road space is effectively been opened up on residential mm -hmm. roads which are not well designed um, to cater for those levels of motor traffic. Yeah and it's interesting when you think about it in those terms because um, some of the pushback has been um, maybe premised on the idea that these streets have always been major rat runs or through routes as they are now but this isn't the case and conversely if you reduce road space for traffic then it will reduce the amount that people are driving which is the point of low traffic neighborhoods isn't it and so you've done some research you have you have the people and places study that you've been doing for a couple of years now in the mini holland boroughs in London. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and what your new research is around around low traffic neighbourhoods? Yeah, exactly. So over the past four years, we've been um, following a group of people living in outer London and looking at travel behaviour, looking at attitudes to travel and the local environment. And um, what we've been doing within that is comparing people who've been living near Mini Holland interventions to people living in the rest of outer London. And we found each year some fairly consistent findings around around 40 to 45 minutes a week more active travel being done by people in what we called high dose areas um, which is where interventions have gone in so that's not just low traffic neighborhoods low traffic neighborhoods in the mini holland boroughs uh, up until now have really only been implemented in Waltham forest kingston and enfield um, tended to do more route-based schemes pedestrian cycle routes um, so our findings were not specifically related to low traffic neighborhoods but obviously with all the current uh, debate around low traffic neighborhoods we thought oh, it'd be, it'd be quite interesting to actually look at that data and see if we can find um, you know if there's any specific change associated with being in a low traffic neighborhood not just interventions more broadly um, but low traffic neighborhoods so we did that and because the study wasn't designed to look at low traffic neighborhoods we don't have a massive sample size within that so it's around sort of like um, by wave three it's around 70 people so not massive numbers but what's quite interesting is that we find this these fairly consistent results that when we look at active travel the increase in active travel seems to be higher in the low traffic neighbourhoods than in the intervention areas more broadly. And we're also only finding reductions in car ownership and use in those low traffic neighbourhoods when we look at them. So it seems like we can't be that sure about the size of the effect because the sample size is small and certainty is quite large. But the story seems to be that interventions, um, active travel interventions, and we're talking about yeah, cycle routes, pedestrian routes, um, greening, low traffic neighbourhoods and so on as a whole do increase walking and cycling. But in terms of getting people out of their cars or getting people maybe to think about not buying a car, it seems that low traffic neighbourhoods could be a really important piece of the puzzle there. 
it's it's effectively when people are deciding um how to travel it kind of balance it because you can't just cut through a short trip through the residential streets it kind of balances in favor of walking and cycling and you mentioned trips to the park um on your blog or on mm. the study um and can you that was quite a good example I thought can you can you just sort of kind of explain how that works on a cognitive level yeah um i mean i think i think there's also there's two things as well there's the fact well there's several things so there's the fact that um short car journeys may take a little longer and people may need to you know have a think about doing them slightly differently so that's one thing that somewhat discourages people from driving because it maybe takes a bit longer it's maybe a bit a little bit more hassle then the walking and cycling environment gets nicer and that so we know that one of the big barriers to walking cycling one of the things that puts people off walking cycling is having to interact with motor traffic so that if there's a big reduction in motor traffic that makes it nicer particularly for people living within that low traffic neighborhood but not exclusively because um, for instance and I can think of some examples of this for myself you know you may live outside of that low traffic neighborhood but perhaps that neighborhood is between you and a local park so the fact that those streets are now quiet and pleasant means that it's easier for you to walk or cycle to the local park and maybe you don't want to drive so much because you can now you know it's a pleasant walk rather than an unpleasant one it feels safe it feels pleasant and so on but also I think one of the things we know about travel behavior more generally is it's habitual and people just tend to carry on doing the same thing whether it's walking cycling car use public transport the same route and it's not necessarily the most rational route it's not necessarily the best choice or whatever and when we have a disruption we have to think about doing things differently and we often don't like it because we are habitual and we suddenly have to think oh i can't walk there i can't drive there what you know what should i do instead but we know that often people, when they have to think about that, they often end up with a better solution. There was a study that I still remember that was done around the time there was some London tube strikes. And they found that the tube strikes had an economic benefit because a lot of people who'd just been following the same tube route suddenly had to think, well, actually, maybe I could walk that last bit instead between Leicester Square and Covent Garden or something. And actually, that made more sense for them to do that. So the fact that people are disrupted, we don't like it, we find it difficult, but it often ends up with us finding a better solution. So it works in it works in a range of ways, I think. And it's important to, to to remember that the low traffic neighborhoods that benefit uh, they should benefit the people who live in those neighborhoods but they should also make short walking and cycling trips for other people who live nearby easier as well potentially mm. and you you said um that, that um, low traffic neighborhoods are a qualitative measure and your um people and places study is a qualitative measurement so it's been uh, you've been asking people what they think about um, about changes in their neighbourhoods and what kind of things have they been saying? Has this has what you just said reflected in in their answers? Now this is really uh, this is an interesting question. Actually, we've um, we haven't looked at that in relation to the low traffic neighbourhoods specifically. We looked at that in relation to the intervention areas more generally. And one of the things that this is kind of a broader lesson about how we think about schemes and how we communicate schemes. So one of the interesting things about the interventions more generally was that people broadly perceived them as improving the cycling environment. They were seen as cycling schemes. And a lot of the discourse, a lot of the talk around some of these measures is around cycling. But the interesting thing was, uh, but so overall, there was an improved perception of the local area, but that was largely due to people thinking that it was better for cycling. But in terms of the change in travel behavior, most of the increase was in walking. So I think perhaps not 
is not enough is done to talk about these schemes in relation to walking and for me i think potentially low traffic neighborhoods are actually more of a pedestrian intervention than a cyclist intervention because for cycling mm. um, people are often going longer distances and that often depends on having like cycle tracks on main roads but a lot of walking is really local trips within people's um, local neighborhood local park local shop just going to see friends and so on and mm. the fact that the the streets um, are potentially turned from um, you know, busy movement corridors to places that are calm, pleasant, quiet, and so on. You know, it potentially makes such a big difference for walking. Mm. Yeah, I guess, I guess um, intuitively you'd think, well, if you reduce traffic on the roads, it would benefit people cycling because they're cycling on the roads, whereas pedestrians on the, are on the pavement. So I guess you'd think that it wouldn't affect pedestrians that much. What kind of what, how how does it help um, people walking? I mean, I think one one thing here, and I think more more research is needed. I'd love to do some more research on this. But manual for streets, which is all about street design, has quite a focus on pedestrians. Um, says, uh, and I always remember this: that um, below a hundred vehicles per hour, which is the kind of levels you you be getting at with with low traffic neighborhoods people start walking in the carriageway and that for me is really important because it means that people feel um that they don't just have to stay on the footway where they maybe only have a meter of space they you know it's often really constrained and they feel that they can wander around in the carriageway without somebody coming up in a car or indeed in a bicycle and pushing them um out of the way and sort of qualitatively you can see that on my, my regular commute which obviously isn't regular these days at the moment but my regular commute would have um, parts bits in Hackney de Beauvoir specifically that have long-standing modal filters um, they're effectively long-standing low traffic neighborhoods and very low levels of motor traffic but quite high levels of cycling and that when I get into that neighborhood is when I see people ambling about in the center of the carriageway and obviously as a cycle commuter that slows me down a bit but mm -hmm. it's really nice because it means that those people feel safe. They can wander around in the carriageway and you don't see that happening when unless people feel safe. So that would roughly equate, when we think about the peaks, that would roughly equate to 1,000 to 1,500 over the course of a day. So that's the kind of levels of motor traffic you might see in a residential street where you have moderate levels of car ownership, but you wouldn't see it if you have lots of motor traffic cutting through. You would have, it would be significantly higher. Yeah, um... I've got a low traffic neighbourhood um, in my area and, you, and I have started to notice that actually people walking in the road and many more people scooting and yeah, it's really nice actually. Obviously people have had a huge change to their habitual lives like you said with Covid and uh, lockdown and um, maybe now is a really good time to be doing that. I guess I guess people are sort of worried about change but one of the things that comes out quite often um, people in people's concerns is that by reducing the through routes for traffic you will increase traffic on the main roads and therefore congestion and pollution what what kind of evidence is is there around that is that covered by by your research not by my own specific research but there's been um i mean it's it's getting a bit old now but the report by um sally kens and her colleagues around about 2000 which collated a load of cases case studies where motor traffic capacity had been reduced not specifically low traffic neighborhoods but more you know it might be bridge closures or pedestrianization schemes or whatever but wider wider schemes and they found that in many of those schemes a chunk of the motor traffic 
disappeared or evaporated or um, which I always hate that kind of phrase because it sounds magic but it basically just means that people travel yeah. differently or went to different places or retimed their journey or whatever <laughs> they did they did something different basically um, so a chunk of that traffic would evaporate and but but the levels varied really widely depending on the context and the policies and, and the broader yeah yeah broader stuff that was going on so it might have been that virtually no traffic evaporated or virtually all of it um, so I think part of the thing part of the issue is we don't know enough about what the impacts are going to be of a specific scheme because clearly there are contextual factors but we don't know enough um, we don't know enough about those and you can imagine um, that wider policies might make an impact that what for instance um, Transport for London is introducing the 24-7 bus lanes on its bus, bus lanes so you can see that will help speed up buses and make bus use more attractive on main roads so that could be quite an important factor because um, the bus is more attractive potential mode shift to the bus so I think that's why it's quite important um, first of all to do more research of course I always think more research is needed but uh, also to um, to trial things, to trial things, um, to collect data, to monitor, to share data, to make adjustments where needed, and to try and learn of what factors are important in terms of making these things successful. But at the same time, also, mitigation measures on main roads are really important in London living streets has got a whole list of them um, because for instance things like um, widening footways and greening which helps separate people from pollution uh, but it's also important to remember that we need this substantial reduction in motor traffic and that pollution and congestion is caused by too much motor traffic so overall the, the aim is yeah. to reduce it um, but but yeah we don't mm. low traffic neighborhoods are just a part of it it's not something that you just want to do on their own there's other things too and things like the low emission zone as well the low emission mm. zone um, in London has already had a substantial impact on pollution so you know bringing that expansion in earlier or you know expanding it to the whole of London again would would have more major impacts so there are a whole range of policies I think that that should be implemented. And um, I guess this issue is maybe why you went back to your people and places survey and looked at changes in car ownership over time in high and low dose, low traffic neighbourhood kind of interventions. The car ownership was really interesting and it wasn't something that we thought of as an outcome before. We hadn't seen it as an outcome. We'd seen it as something we adjust for. But uh, we thought, let's look at let's look at car ownership as an outcome and we have found I mean it's not you know the the evidence is limited we have a fairly small sample size and um, we need more studies but um, we're seeing this um, the point estimate the central estimate is a 20% reduction in car ownership in those low traffic neighborhood areas which could be really substantial you can imagine the difference mm. that 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 might make so car ownership um, in across London is now running at around 55% of households, I think. So you could imagine potentially if that were reduced um, to 44%, that that would be a really major shift, and that would follow, you know, following on from that, less driving and so on. And I don't think it's not necessarily. I had question. Uh, I was asked about this. You know, oh, is everybody selling their car? And I don't think it's necessarily that because we've got a control group and an intervention group. So. Um, what it could be, for instance, is that as people get to a certain lifestyle, like life stage, they tend to get a car. So often potentially they have kids, they get a car. And perhaps what we're seeing in the low traffic neighbourhoods might be um, that people in those neighbourhoods, when they get kids, are maybe thinking, oh, perhaps I don't need a car. Perhaps I can do without 
um, do without buying a car. So we, we don't quite know the mechanisms. I'd like to see more qualitative research as well around decision making around buying a car, um, because I think that's a part of it. And we know that once people have a car, it's actually quite hard for them to give it up. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I've had yeah. certainly had conversations with many with transport planners who know quite well that it's not rational for them to continue owning a car when they hardly use it. But but they find it really hard to give it up. Yeah. So I suspect that perhaps some of that effect is people not buying a car when they might otherwise have done so. I see, which is a major issue at the moment. Um, people thinking about buying cars or buying cars because of COVID and trying to avoid public transport. And um, there's also evidence, isn't there, that um, when you don't own a car, that you drive less because you're not trying to justify it or you're not just popping to the shops in the car to save a couple of minutes because it's not there. Yeah, massive, massively less. I mean, it's one of the biggest determinants of car use is whether, whether you own a car or not. And I guess, um, yeah, I guess car share schemes can replace. It's amazing when you think 20%, because if we you were to take 20% of the cars off of the roads in our towns and cities, then that's more, that's less pavement parking, for example. Um, getting rid of pavement parking, quite often a reason for people not wanting to do it is, you know, where are all the cars going to go if they don't go on the pavement? The roads are narrow. And also um, limited space for cycle tracks parking's also a major issue or removing parking so it could almost be a sort of um positive reinforcement loop i think it? so i think there are really multiple benefits if we can reduce i mean cars spend over 90 percent of their time parked but you know this is wasteful but it's also a problem in a range of ways so i've got a master's student who's just finished her dissertation looking at children and cycling and one of the things she looked at was parked cars on both sides of a road and she found that that was quite off-putting for people letting their kids cycle because the kids are relatively small compared to the parked cars so whereas yeah. for an adult cycling they might feel okay with that they might not but for a chill for a child um you know it feels much more risky and i've also found in some research um that's currently under peer review on cycling injury risk that potentially you know residential streets are safer for cycling but the presence of parked cars can negate some of that again because you've got those visibility mm. issues you've got the pulling out issues and so on so if we can reduce the amount of parked cars and also it means that potentially we can give some space over to more space over to parklets um, which which would be particularly important yes. I think in areas lower income areas and areas where children don't have easy access to green space. So I'm quite interested in how you got these people for the people and places mm -hmm. study in the first place, because there's quite a few of them, isn't there? You're, you're sort of interviewing them every year. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a survey, but it is quite a lengthy survey. So it's quite a commitment. Um, so okay. we, we, mm. we got people through um, through a couple of different methods. So we, we did um, random mail shots to different addresses in outer London, across outer London. And then we also used a couple of TfL customer databases. So, you know, like the Oyster database, which is public transport users. Mm -hmm. So we've got a mix of, uh, and also a um, cycling database. So we've got a mix of these different survey sources roughly split between them. Um, but what's kind of interesting is that, you know, as you'd expect with outer, with people who live in outer London as well, they, they don't cycle that much. So they're not um, existing keen keen cyclists and they the car use is relatively high as as well so it's kind of people that this is one of the things that is interesting about the intervention in outer London more generally is that it's more typical of metropolitan areas urban areas in the rest of the UK as well you know people are not cycling very much um, they do do a reasonable amount of walking but um, they're also using the car quite a lot there's quite a high car ownership quite high car dependence and that's something that we're seeing very recently there's been a increase in car use in outer London that was in the news yeah obviously it's why it's super important to create um, other sort of safe 
options for people to get around. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to blame people if the capacity isn't there on public transport and they don't feel safe yeah. on public transport and they they, they want mm-hmm. to use their car. And if But if there are opportunities, you know, if it's better, they've got a decent cycle route, if walking in their local neighbourhood is pleasant, then it gives people more options. And, of course, that's particularly important for people who don't own a car, so who don't have other choices and may feel like they have to get on a bus but they don't feel safe on a bus so potentially giving them giving them that option to walk or cycle more is really important another thing i don't know if there's um evidence on this from your study or other studies but there's one another one of the issues that people raise or the concerns that people raise um is potential to disadvantage disabled people or those who rely on um, motor vehicles in low traffic neighborhoods i don't know if there's anything um any research on that yeah i mean i i, I mean there's certainly um data showing that disabled people um their, their, their mobility is restricted in a range of ways so disabled people are less likely to have um, private car access although they may be more likely to need it um also disabled people tend to walk less than non-disabled people and i think one reason for that is actually that they are at higher risk of being injured by a motor vehicle so um, some research i did using national travel survey self-report injury data suggested that disabled people might be four or five times as likely to be injured by a motor vehicle per kilometer while walking compared to non disabled people so people feel like it's a hostile walking environment um, for Mm. them so that puts people off walking there's also barriers to cycling for disabled people that don't need to exist Um, for instance I was just reading Mm. earlier about the high cost of adapted um, bikes and the difficulty of getting um, you know adapted uh, um, being able to adapt wheelchairs to become hand cycles you know that some of that equipment is quite Mm -hmm. expensive difficult to get hold of difficult to maintain and so on so there's a range of barriers um, that, that need working on um, I think um, surveys suggest that pe- when people are asked about, in general, are asked about necessary journeys, and there was some research from London, people tended to say that um, you know disabled people um, p- should be prioritised. I think one thing that's important about low traffic neighbourhoods is that it's not um, stopping people driving to destinations. So all areas within, all all addresses within a low traffic neighbourhood would still be accessible Mm -hmm. by motor vehicles. So it's not like full pedestrianisation. But of course, some journeys may, particularly to start off with, take a bit longer. So there may be some inconvenience for people who continue Mm -hmm. driving. It's worth remembering that the majority of drivers tend to be more affluent, tend to be less likely to be disabled, more likely to be male and so on. So there are certain demographic skews in terms of who's driving and who may be affected. Um, so I, th- I think for any group, there's going to be a mix of impacts. And one impact maybe for people who need to continue driving, as I say, there may be increases in journey times, particularly to start off with as people are still trying to find find their way around and so on. But there will also be benefits um, in the longer term if people who don't need mm. to drive stop driving. That will then potentially make driving easier. Plus, for disabled people who are you know, potentially could walk and cycle, who use wheelchairs and who could travel more within their local area in those ways, that hopefully that travel should be made easier by low traffic neighbourhoods. I mean, I think one thing that is important is to involve disabled people about some of those um, features, because sometimes, for instance, if planters are put in the way of dropped curbs, that's not terribly helpful. And that may have struck disabled people using those dropped curbs, but that doesn't need to happen. It's just a question of Mm -hmm. moving the planter, not putting it in the way in that way. So it is important to think about these issues, but um, disabled pedestrians will particularly benefit from safer streets with fewer cars as they're more at risk of being injured. Um, 
um, and similarly potentially um, disabled cyclists who may be using adaptive bikes may feel more safe and comfortable when there's fewer motor vehicles to share the road with so I think there may be some inconvenience for car users but overall yeah it is interesting about the um, people with disabilities and older people isn't it because it can be quite scary crossing the road and you're expected to run out of the way of cars quite a lot which I always find just it's just so inhumane isn't it and yeah if you're not able to run out of the way then you're it is and and one of the one of the things that I kind of picked up just as, as an aside from the people and places survey, so a lot of our respondents um, are uh, midlife or older, you know, we have something mm. of a old skew towards older people in our in our sample. And one of the things that I really appreciate reading some of the comments. So although the survey is quantitative, there are a lot of qualitative comments that we get and people, the way that people describe um, car dominated environments, how they impact on them. So for instance, um, footway parking, which does exist in some parts of outer London, forcing people to walk in the road and actually knowing people who've been injured because they've been walking the road, they haven't been able to get out of the way quick enough. Or the fact that where you have um, driveways, the pavement um, footway just um, goes up and down and up and down is really uneven. And if you've got any kind of mobility impairment, that can be really difficult so kind of everyday features of the local environment and hopefully low traffic neighborhoods can be part of sort of redressing that balance a bit and saying look the carriageway is also available for use for um, pedestrians and also potentially leading to people driving less owning fewer cars potentially being able to reallocate some space to parklets to benches thank you Rachel for coming on our podcast it's nice to hear from you and good luck with the research thank you good to speak to you you've been listening to the active travel podcast brought to you by the active travel academy thanks again to our own dr rachel aldred for coming and talking to us about her research links to the researcher in the notes and in case you didn't know we are on twitter and instagram at active underscore ata and you can email us at active travel academy at westminster.ac.uk drop us a line let us know what you think suggest some research for us to cover until next time